Welcome to Call and Character. My name is Davey Henriksen, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. In a moment, I'll introduce our third episode with the theologian Justin Bailey. Justin and I will be talking about his new book, Reimagining Apologetics, which examines the importance of beauty and imagination for human flourishing. We'll keep sharing new conversations each week or two. I also wanted to mention two events that may be of interest to podcast listeners. Our first podcast guest, Christian Cobes Dumay, delivered a virtual lecture on her book for Valparaiso University on September 29th. You can find the recording online on our Facebook page and our website, www.valpo.edu slash leadserve. And then next week on Monday, October 5th, I'll be participating in a panel conversation hosted by Breaking Ground. The topic is Between Pandemic and Protest, Exploring the Future of the Liberal Arts in Higher Education. The panelists are Jessica Hooten-Wilson, Jeff Bilbro, and Francis Sue, a future podcast guest. I'll be moderating the session alongside Ann Snyder. You can find more information at www.breakingground.us. Now to the conversation. Welcome to Call and Character, not-so-casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. The theologian Sarah Coakley once asked in a poignant essay on belief in God, what are you seeking? Because if these arguments simply add up to a range of arid, abstract possibilities, then they are not grabbing you existentially in the way that they would if you were prepared to put your life on the line. Coakley's question frames the conclusion of the new book, Reimagining Apologetics, the Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age, by our guest today, Dr. Justin Bailey. Justin is Assistant Professor of Theology at Dort University and works at the intersection of theology, culture, and ministry. And his wonderful new book asks his readers to rethink Christian witness, not as a defensive, overly intellectual project, but as an attempt to reveal the beauty of an imaginative faith. Or to use Coakley's words, is there anything beautiful enough about religious faith that you'd be prepared to stake your life on it? So first, Justin, welcome. Thanks for having me. I want to jump in first with some of the framing questions that you begin your book with. What is traditional apologetics and why do you think it has fallen on hard times? Yeah, that's a good question. It sort of depends on who you ask. Um, <laughs> but when I say traditional apologetics, uh, the picture that I have in mind and the picture that I think most people have in mind is uh, a well-read, eloquent genius on a stage answering all sorts of objections, uh, maybe giving reasons why we should believe. Uh, and that apologetics is primarily concerned with defending the truth of Christian faith. In fact, if you picked up most books on apologetics, it would probably define apologetics as primarily oriented towards truth. Um, and that sort of apologetics still does have wide purchase within conservative evangelicalism. There's lots of books being sold. There's lots of options for training people to do apologetics that way. And uh, traditional apologetics in that sense is sort of seen either as, as, as a weapon, as armor uh, for clashes with hostile secular culture, or as a way internally to sort of bolster the belief of the faithful. So that's sort of what I think of 
uh, when I think of traditional apologetics. Um, and so you said hard times. So within Christianity more broadly, there's been quite a bit of suspicion towards that way of doing things. Uh, as I point out in my book, it mainline Protestant undergraduate and seminary programs, apologetics dropped out a long time ago, maybe 60 or 70 years ago in, in a lot of different cases. Um, and then sort of in the middle between the two, maybe within a broader evangelicalism, it's sort of at a crossroads. I taught a class at an evangelical seminary, and I was really actually surprised by how much I needed to defend the legitimacy of the course. Um, I had students saying things to me like, if this is about making arguments and hitting people over the head with truth, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, so there's a suspicion about the way it's been done. And a lot of times that goes to the core of the discipline itself. So it depends on who you ask. But one of the things I want to say is that defending the truth is really only a part of apologetics. And what we think of as traditional apologetics is actually sort of a novelty in the history of apologetics. Yeah, I find that really interesting and, and also um, helps me reflect on some of my own background religiously. I grew up as a sort of precocious, uh, aspiring theologian, reading like Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel's sure. Case yeah. for Christ, things like that. And those books uh, certainly focused on the truth claims of Christianity and would have, and I think they were framing their projects as a defense of Christianity as a superior set of propositions or beliefs about faith. So what is it about your work that shifts the nature of the project fundamentally? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let me say, I don't know that I'm doing anything particularly new so much as I'm trying to recover something a little bit older um, and apply that kind of older, broader way of doing apologetics for our contemporary situation, for uh, the age of authenticity. Um, and I think that if you sort of think about traditional apologetics and the way that it perhaps functions in our society today as a form of culture war, and I'm wanting to ask the question, what does it look like to do apologetics if culture war is not actually the best metaphor for the way we think about commending the faith and engaging, engaging culture, uh, to take sort of the line from Mako Fujimura, but if culture care um, is actually the better posture that we're meant to have, what would it look like to do apologetics in that way? Uh, which, of course, means that we have to engage more than just the intellect. Uh, we have to engage the imagination. So let me play devil's advocate for just one minute and just ask you then, does it really matter if something is beautiful, if you've cultivated something really excellent and imaginative, if it isn't true? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, what is the relationship of, of beauty and truth? And the thing about both well, there's sort of goodness in there too. Truth, goodness, and beauty is all of them make claims on us, right? Uh, but beauty is the most powerfully felt. And so because of that, it's also sometimes the most difficult to distinguish between counterfeits. So I'll just admit, yeah, if something is beautiful, it doesn't necessarily t mean that it's true. And the truth is, I think that we find things beautiful and beauty is kind of ordered by goodness and goodness is ordered by truth. But that's not the way that we experience it. We always sort of start with the aesthetic. We start with the felt sense of the world. Uh, and something is going to be intrinsically either beautiful or not beautiful to us. Uh, and then we sort of have to begin to test it. We test beauty by goodness and goodness by truth. So I'm not objecting to uh, the desire to um, have the beautiful accord with reality. We have a responsibility to get reality right. I'm just observing uh, that in our experience, we start with beauty. We don't tend to start with truth. Usually we have this imaginative, intuitive sense of the way that the world is. 
And then we use intellectual considerations to either validate that or justify that or test that. So intellect is important. Um, it just doesn't come first. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's, that's helpful. I mean, this also gets into a discussion, I suppose, of matters of personal taste. So uh, an example that kind of comes to my mind was I recently was uh, at a sort of book club conversation with some friends, and we were discussing one of Flannery O'Connor's short stories. And it, the discussion ended up being a sort of discussion about not just the excellence of O'Connor stories, but whether it appealed to us, whether it was attractive to us. And I, I'll just kind of reveal my cards. I, I much prefer the vision of something like Marilyn Robinson, who plays a very central role in your book, which we'll get to in a moment, to the dark grace of, of Flannery O'Connor. There's just something about Robinson's picture of the good life that I just, I want to saturate myself in her world and in her with her characters. And there's something about O'Connor's stories and characters, which while I acknowledge their, their excellence, um, just they don't they don't appeal to me. They don't affect me, if that makes sense. Sure. So I'm curious, you know, especially with something like O'Connor, who has so many fans and who, whom an author that whom so many people love. How does my personal taste play into this? Like, if I'm not attracted to the beauty of her writing, but many many people are, what does that say about me or about the nature of the thing that we find beautiful? Well, I think the fact that many many people are attracted to it leads you to, it's an imaginative provocation, right? It, it leads you to say, well, what am I missing here? What have I not seen? That's great. And, yeah, I like that. And, and how do I, how can I spend more time looking at what they're looking at? Maybe alongside someone who finds this uh, illumina- illuminating and um, that they actually feel like this opens up space. It, it ruptures, it breaks open categories. It makes space for grace. The very fact that there are people who, a lot of people in a lot of different walks of life who find something um, attractive or or engaging or illuminating is a provocation for us to 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 spend more time with it. Um, I think it also kind of touches on any Christian conception of beauty can't simply be what we might think of in terms of just the pleasant, right? Because for Christians, the most beautiful thing is the cross, and no one could have imagined the cross. There's this great line from Fleming Rutledge where she says, "You know, nobody could have imagined the worship of a crucified man." And so there's this real sense that as we enter into the Christian story, we start with what is pleasing, what is attractive to us. But at some point, we are confronted with a narrative, uh, the story of, of Christianity that not only includes brokenness and brutality, but puts it really at the very center and says that in the midst of this brutality, in the midst of this brokenness, God has transfigured it. Um, and so that requires us to have a chastened understanding of beauty. It requires us to have a uh, a perception of what is attractive and what is beautiful that takes into account the full range and of how God enters into human brokenness and brutality with that surprising grace and saves the world through something as ugly as the cross. So to start with the imagination or to start with what is beautiful doesn't mean necessarily that what we, what, you know, whatever we find personally appealing is going to have the final say in what is actually beautiful. Like I said, we have to test all of these things, uh, but it just sort of starts where people are. People already find particular things beautiful. People already feel uh, like particular narratives are more capacious. And I'm just wanting to start where people are. It's, it's really a missional impulse to say, the starting point is not necessarily the same as the ground. Um, and so people are already navigating a world that is aesthetically oriented. And so how do we enter into that and meet people where they are? So it's possible to train or form an imagination. Right. Yeah, definitely. So you're, you're reading you're, O'Connor. 
Well, possibly, and that maybe yeah. my my imagination is malformed. I'm sure my yeah. friend would want to say that. <laughs> uh, and you are a, a professional at forming minds and imaginations in your role as a as a professor of theology. I'm curious uh, with your focus on imagination and and beauty as being sort of the entree point for for entering a world of truth and goodness as well as beauty. How do you how do you use how do you talk about the imagination in the classroom? Are there certain practices that you uh, employ to open your students up to all these beautiful things? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think quite a bit of my students, let's call it aesthetic experience of my class and of the material. And so when I when I use that word aesthetic, I'm, I'm thinking about the felt experience of being in the classroom and um, encountering the, me- the modes and methods of delivery and how I introduce texts to them and the posture that we have um, when we engage them. I'm thinking of, you know, as I teach students, how can I create a space of imaginative hospitality where they feel free to explore possibilities? That's really what the imagination does. It explores possibilities. Um, and it doesn't explore them just, you know, for the sake of exploring possibilities. It explores possibilities because it's seeking a firmer grip of the world. And um, what you find when you prioritize imaginative engagement is the gift of limits. Imagination withers when there are no limits to direct it. You know, if I just told you, well, imagine, and I don't give you any direction on which to point your imagination, uh, you can't really do anything with it. Uh, and it also uh, flourishes when there are too many limits. And so I think that uh, when I'm teaching, I'm trying to think of what are the right limits? Um, what are the right sort of guardrails that I can give students to enable them to see through the eyes of this author or through reading a text that there's incredible distance between um, whether it's scripture or you know, Aristotle? Uh, how do I help them to see through other eyes? Uh, the other thing that comes to mind is that Certain things only make sense from the inside, um, from a position of commitment. And this is really one of the central apologetic problems, is Christian faith really only is intelligible completely from the inside. And so how do you help somebody who's on the outside have an insider's grasp of faith, right? And, And here's where I think the imagination really offers us a profound gift, because it enables us to enter in and see with someone else's eyes. Um, so I think those are the, the two things that um, they come to mind initially. Another theme of your book has to do with uh, secularity. And of course, it finds its way into the, into the subtitle of the book. There have been, a, I think, a lot of interesting recent works that address the resurgence of various kinds of spirituality in a supposedly secular modern age. And I'm thinking one of the more recent ones that I really have enjoyed is Tara Isabel Burton's Strange Rites. Yeah. So your book uh, is some sense, I think, calling for a, a re-enchantment of the Christian witness. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to ask you: Why do you think that this re-enchantment is is even possible in in our modern context? Why does this abiding interest in the sacred persist? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll just say I I also really enjoyed um, that book by Burton, and find that she is describing the precise sort of situation that I'm hoping to engage, which is uh, an age of authenticity. And so your question again is, why, does the, why is this interest in the sacred still there? Right, yeah. I, I think you know, simply because the sacred is there. <laughs> um, it's, it's something that's real, that, that we're kind of bumping into, that, uh, that we live in the face of at all times. There's something that Marilyn Robinson says um, 
she objects to the very idea of the secular um, because she says it assumes that there's a space that God is not present and there are no such spaces. And others have said something like that too. Um, But I think that, you know, one of the reasons why this is not going away is because we are incurably religious and we are responding to something that's there. You know, this is Calvin's sensus divinitatis. Um, And the problem is, of course, that we take that religious sense and we make idols. Um, We invest politics or sports or parenting with religious significance. And that's a concern. We need to be concerned about that. But I want to say, you know, in my book that there are other forces in the world other than the will of evil to take a line from uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, And so we shouldn't be surprised to find God at work in strange places, even in strange rites, Um, even if we find what we find there is thin and needs some thickening. Um, And so that's why I want to say that apologetics can be about discerning God's presence and God's action and not just about defending some extracted truths. You mentioned Marilyn Robinson, uh, and along with Robinson, George McDonald, I think are the two exemplars that you talk about, especially in the second half of the book, as as Christian writers who embody something you want to bring to the forefront for your readers. So I'm curious, if a student asked you what it is about the imaginative capacity of Robinson and McDonald specifically, what is it about their imagination that that drew you in initially? What would you say? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, where do I start uh, <laughs> talking about two uh, writers that have so formed my own imagination? Uh, I think I, I discern in both of them. They're very different writers, you know, and I met Marilyn Robinson last year and asked her if she'd ever read McDonald. She said, no. Uh, so there's really? not any, Is that yeah, true? That's interesting. Yeah, there's not any direct um, borrowing, but they have a common source in a sort of Protestant imagination uh, or, or what I would call Calvinist imagination, though, um, McDonald would not have wanted to be identified as a Calvinist. Uh, his epistemology, his understanding of God's presence and action in the world is, remains very Calvinistic um, in the sense that, you know, the, the world is charged with God's grandeur and um, that God intends or means uh, the beauty that we see. And that's a similar thread that, um, that Robinson picks up from the epistemology of Jonathan Edwards, the fact that reality is intended uh, for human perception in some sense. Um, and the making of meaning is, is fundamentally this um, luminous uh, act of perception. And so I think that it's, it's that sense uh, in which the world is full of divine presence, that God's, God shows up and is present to us, not as a matter of merging with creation or ontological constitution, but God is, is present in terms of his relationship to us. And so that, that was, that's sort of the theological backdrop of, of why I think it appeals to me so much, because I, I feel like they, in their literary art, embody this fundamental conviction that the world around us is dripping with divine grace. And both of them just have these beautiful passages about that. Um, and that's and that's that's the significance I think of having both of these very different um, writers who are both dealing with secularity of different types. McDonald, who's sort of writing at the advent of of secularity in the way we understand it in the Victorian age when it's becoming publicly acceptable to be an atheist, and then Robinson, who's obviously writing on the other side of the masters of suspicion, and uh, and sort of trying to defend. Uh, the the good of of human mind and perception. Uh, they're very different, and yet I think that they both give us this 
uh, perception of the world that is drenched with with divine grace. So I'm going to take the liberty as as host of the podcast to read a paragraph from one of my favorites from Robinson's Gilead because I think it's a passage as you were talking that um, I think is maybe her at her, maybe the, at her closest to McDonald and her sort of transcendental perspective on the way that grace suffuses the world. Yeah. So you'll recognize this passage. We've actually discussed this passage together <laughs> off a podcast. This is uh, from the penultimate page of Gilead, which is the her Pulitzer Prize winning novel. This is the voice of uh, John Ames, who is the, the main protagonist of this first novel in the Gilead series. He's an Iowa pastor in the mid 20th century who's reflecting on human mortality in a series of uh, little comments uh, or epistles to his young son. So this is at the very end of that, I love the prairie. So often I have seen the dawn come and the light flood over the land and everything turn radiant at once. That word good so profoundly affirmed in my soul that I am amazed I should be allowed to witness such a thing. There may have been a more wonderful first moment when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. But for all I know to the contrary, they still do sing and shout and they certainly might well. Here on the prairie, there is nothing to distract attention from the evening and the morning, nothing on the horizon to abbreviate or to delay. Mountains would seem an impertinence from that point of view. This passage, I I have always loved this passage. I I read Gilead for the first time when I was still in college. This is, I guess, this is dating me. (laughs) And I've read it many times since. I've read Gilead when I was in college, after I had my first son, and then after I moved to to Iowa. And it was after moving to Iowa that this passage just jumped out to me in the way that I think really great, beautiful art does. There's something new, a new dimension that jumps out when she's describing the prairie as being inspiration for the angelic host singing praises to God. And I just, I, I, I imagine McDonald being able to pen something like that, maybe about the Scottish Highlands, not the Iowa Prairie. But there's something that that evokes Robinson's love for a specific place as a site of divine presence, right? Yeah. Ah, so good. Amen. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What else is there to say? Yeah, you should have ended the podcast with that uh, because everything (laughs) now I say will be comparatively uh, silly. Um, But uh, there's a New York Times writer, a reviewer, um, who wrote a review of Gilead when it came out. And he said, Um, You know, I'm an atheist, but Robinson enables me to see what it would be like to live in a world that is uh, created, yet fallen, and loved by its creator, suffused with divine grace. And um, this is one of the reasons why I've chosen Robinson as one of my conversation partners, because there's a wide testimony of, you know, secular people, people who might not have... um, positive experience with faith and religion. And yet, how do you, and so how do you help somebody who's an outsider to Christian faith understand why, you know, sort of like why people like um, Flannery O'Connor, right? Why all these people are attracted to this and what artists and writers like Robinson McDonald offer us is that imaginative vision. They enable us to see through their eyes and see this is what it would be like uh, to live in a world that has this sort of story in which ordinary things like the prairie are um, suffused with grace and can shine like transfiguration. Uh, 
if you just have courage to see it, as she goes on to say, and, and I think the next paragraph um, of what you just read or a couple paragraphs later, there's something just really powerful there. And so that's what I'm, I'm just trying to alert my readers to say there are artists and writers who have been doing this for a long time. And what can we learn from them? And what would happen if we took them as our models uh, rather than sort of intellectual geniuses? Not that there's, you know, again, there's certainly, I want to say there's certainly a place for that sort of apologetics. Um, at, at a point, we, we do want to sort of investigate and explore whether these things are true, whether they match up with reality. Uh, but perhaps there's a way in which if we start with the imagination, we give people reasons to care whether or not it's true. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that Robinson does. Right. And I think a lot of our, our greatest artists are essentially issuing calls to attention, you know, like calling our, our perhaps distracted minds to notice something beautiful that yeah. wasn't immediately apparent. You, you write, I love this line. This is on page 156. You, you describe Robinson, Robinson's writing as inviting outsiders to see the world through the shocked eyes of wonder, even as it invites insiders to a posture of generous love. So it's an invitation to those on the outside to kind of see something as seemingly banal and ordinary as an Iowa prairie as a site for angelic host singing. Yeah. <laughs> While also inviting insiders to, what do you mean when you say inviting them to a posture of generous love? Yeah. So well, within the context of that passage I'm talking about um, in the scene of in Gilead, I, I sort of don't want to spoil it, but they're one of the main things that happens in that is you have John Ames who has this capacious vision uh, for the world and sees it suffused with divine grace. And yet one of the nearest characters to him, he doesn't see, he doesn't see rightly. And so the book is really a book about perception and how, even as we find God's presence in the world, we don't always see um, those around us that clearly. And those are both meant to correct each other. Um, the way we see the world gives us a sort of hospitality that then can be extended to our neighbor and allow them to sort of reveal themselves to us. And uh, in order to, to think about what would it look like to help somebody on the outside to see as if from the inside, you have to think about how do they already see the world and what would be good news to them and what would be beautiful to them. You have to meet them where they are in a sense. And that requires a posture of of listening, of attention, of generosity that beauty trains us in and that that can then be extended towards uh, other people. So I'm going to ask you one of these very unfair questions along the lines of why didn't you write about this or that? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've, you know, we both share a love of Robinson and I was raised in McDonald, although he has played less of a, a formative role after, uh, after I grew up. There's another figure that I, I saw resonances with in your in your work, but it doesn't really get mentioned very much or or have a sustained interaction with, and that's uh, Saint Augustine, who's a foundational theological figure in the Christian West. And Augustine, of course, has has many uh, famous lines about desire and, and what the heart wills, and about his famous line about our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. All of which seem very, I think, sympathetic to your project, Augustine uh, of of all maybe some of the, the early church fathers was very much interested in love and the, the affections of the soul. At the same time, Augustine is often very critical of human desire and human loves. Of course, he, he is suspicious of the effects of sin in malforming, in disorienting 
our loves. So what I, I want to ask you is an Augustinian question. I'm not going to ask you why you didn't say more about Augustine, but I'll, I'll, I'll pretend I'll play the role of Augustine for a brief moment. Sure. Are we, by, by paying attention to the desires of the human heart, what we are attracted to because it is beautiful or appealing, are we giving too much authority to something that so often leads us astray? Yeah, that's a good question. And maybe I'll just start by answering the question that you said you wouldn't ask, why didn't I say more about Augustine? And, and that's probably because he's above my pay grade. You know, he's on Mount Rushmore. And uh, so I'm starting, uh, <laughs> starting somewhere else. But uh, no, in all seriousness, I think Augustine, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about both sides of it. He is a model of imaginative apologetics. Uh, as you said, because of the centrality of desire in his theological anthropology. I'd even say that the Confessions shows us uh, lyric, a sort of lyric apologetics at its best, allowing us to see through the lover's eyes. Uh, and City of God shows us epic apologetics. Um, he's basically saying that there is a bigger and better story than the story of Rome. And let me show you how the story of Christianity actually makes sense of, of the story, better of, of our experiences better than the story of Rome. In that sense, I, I think that, you know, Augustine is an ally and a model for, for what I'm trying to do. Uh, as to the second part of it, um, I think that, as I said before, I want to start with desire because that's where people are. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean giving desire the final word or final authority. We have to interrogate our desires and ultimately our desires and our imaginings have to submit to to someone else's story, right? To the cross and the resurrection. And, but I still believe that based on that, that what we find when we do is not that God is less beautiful than we had imagined or desired, but that God is actually better than we imagine or, or desire. And I think that's, that's the thing I would want to say is that we, we can start with desire, with human desire, and then allow those desires to in some way be transfigured as they encounter the Christian story. Uh, we are not taking desire as sort of definitive and the authority that whatever I desire is, is ultimately what is there. That desire has to be uh, chastened by reality and by the reality of the story of creation, fall, and redemption. So that's what I would say, I think, to the second part of it, that I think Augustine offers us a model of engaging desire and engaging imagination, which is why I said what I'm doing is not really new, but a return to an older way of doing apologetics. Uh, and yet at the same time, I think that, yeah, we ultimately do need to um, interrogate our desires and allow them to be caught up in the Christian story where they will be transfigured. So one other unfortunately political question that often arises when you talk about beauty is why beauty now? Specifically, and we think about everything that's been happening just the summer of 2020 right. and the political discord and polarization, you know, protests and, and riots and city centers, uh, a looming election that, that seems to even threaten some of our basic democratic norms. Just a lot going on right. uh, in, in culture. And I suppose that one potential criticism of a project focused so much on beauty and imagination is, well, isn't that sort of pie in the sky, isn't that rather abstract and ephemeral when we're dealing with real social political concerns in people's lives literally on the line right now? So why a project on beauty in the midst of all of this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in my book, I talk about it in terms of an apologetics of glory versus an apologetics of the cross. 
And so, you know, I'll just say again that I think that the cross has to figure very deeply in our conception of beauty. Having said that, I want to say that beauty and brutality are both visceral realities in the world. And the struggle is to believe that beauty is more fundamental, is deeper, that though the world has fallen, it is also created and loved by its creator. Uh, I think we need beauty more than ever because beauty teaches us to hope uh, that this is what reality is really like. This is deeper than the brutality of all the selfishness and evil and injustice that we have wrought through our sin. So I think that, that that's one answer. I also think we need imagination more than ever right now um, because imagination flourishes under adverse conditions because it seeks possibilities. We need imagination to hope, to, to say, can tomorrow be better than today? And, and what would it look like? And what would we have to do in order to move towards that reality? Imagination, you know, we often sort of toss it aside as uh, escapist or infantile, and it can be those things. But in reality, what we're doing with the imagination is exploring possibilities so that we can have a firmer grip on reality, so that we can navigate the world uh, more skillfully. And lots of people can talk about particular uh, pieces of music or literature or films that by spending time in that imaginative world, you find yourself somehow able, able to better navigate uh, the primary world. And I think that's what works of imagination are designed to do. They're s- restoring our sanity. Uh, you know, one of the things that when the pandemic started that I started doing with my son is uh, we, were li- we listened to Lord of the Rings, the unabridged audiobook of Lord of the Rings uh, every night, you know, for the first two or three months, because it takes quite a while to get through. And it was incredible in the way, you know, just first of all, just to share that with my son, uh, who is 11 years old, his first exposure to Lord of the Rings. And, and also just to, the way that that kept me grounded um, and restored my sanity and helped me to believe that tomorrow can be better than today. I want to wrap by returning to the question that the theologian Sarah Coakley posed. Uh, it's a quote that you put at the beginning of your conclusion, and I find it a really arresting idea. Is there anything beautiful enough about religious faith, Justin, that you'd be prepared to stake your life on, and what would it be? Wow. <laughs> Let's go for the uh, ultimate here. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say that I am absolutely arrested by the beauty of Jesus Christ. And though current circumstances have caused me to probably doubt a lot of things, uh, whether it is the church or the power of rational argument, <laughs> like never before. I continue just to be arrested by the beauty of Jesus Christ and of the story uh, that that he tells and uh, that he embodies. And so what I hope that my students see and that everyone that I know sees is the beauty of Christ, so much so that they would inquire as to whether um, this is true. And uh, And I think that's not just the project I'm pursuing in my book, but really the project that I'm trying to pursue uh, with my life is to live a life that is beautiful, um, that reflects the beauty that I see in Jesus. Well, thanks, Justin. Uh, Again, this is a a wonderful book, Reimagining Apologetics, just published by InterVarsity Press, and I'd encourage uh, listeners to take a look at it. And I want to thank you, Justin, for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. 
Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. If you have any feedback or questions, follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send an email to lead.serve at valpo.edu. Our production team includes Aaron Morrison and Kim Neiman. Please subscribe to Call in Character on iTunes, Spotify, and other places podcasts are found, and leave us a comment and a rating. Until next time.